If you're joining us for the first time, uh, this is our discovery class that we teach on Sunday mornings, but I am um, tweaking it a little bit for uh, other churches who are using it in a number of places across the country and even in foreign countries for which we're grateful. Um, but with that said, these are the bedrock truths of how to walk with God. And I often tell parents, what do you want your children, what do you want your grandchildren to know when they leave your home? These truths. But you can't impart what you don't possess. And so it's critically important that we have a handle on these. All right, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that as the bride of Christ, the Lord Jesus will come for us in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed and we'll be with him forever. Thank you for the promises, for the completion of our salvation. And thank you that in this course of sanctification, you did not abandon us. You sent the Spirit as our helper. And so we pray and ask that as we learn more about the principles of your word and how to interface with the Holy Spirit using the word, that you would speak to our hearts and help us to understand it and more importantly, to even apply it. So I ask you for your help and your guidance. Bless all those that are listening, those here, those live streaming. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just review for a brief second. Um, this is topic seven in the course, and the title is The Christian in the Bible. We started with six objectives, and we began by speaking first about the power of the Word of God. We spoke of the power of God's Word as it relates first to justification, it's the tool, it's the instru instrument that the Spirit of God uses to convert us. And then we began to move into the section, God's Word in respect to our sanctification. And so we'll see in these next two sessions especially, the balance between understanding how the Spirit fills us in relation to the Word of God. Many a Christian gets stuck in sin and they're not able to move forward and they think the solution is just to confess and repent. That's a half-truth. And so understanding the role that the Spirit uses with Scripture, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. We saw last time critical to this process of sanctification is that there must be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. So we looked at 1 Peter 2.1, therefore putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Then he commands, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. And I suggested that when you come to a verse like that, you're not sure what the differences are in the words if you're using a formal equivalent translation. That is, uh, we covered this in the course in Bibliology. I believe Drew will be covering this in our uh, CBC University. It'll be one of the courses offered later in the fall. Uh, understanding the different kinds of translations is very, very important. And so a formal equivalent is best as possible, word for word, translates uh, from the original language into the receptor tongue. And so you can just look up, typically in an English dictionary, but if it's a theological word, it's good to have a Bible dictionary. And we'll speak a little bit later in this section about some critical tools. James will say the same thing, that we've been born again through the word of truth, and then he says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And we saw that when James uses the word save your soul, he's not talking about conversion. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking in this realm of sanctification, growing up in Christ. 
And so, um, and then we saw that God created his word in such a way that it is profitable. And so we spoke about the perspicuity of God's word. Again, a, a term that we covered in depth in the course of bibliology. It's a 50 cent word, but it's been used for hundreds of years in Protestantism to underscore the clarity of scripture. That unlike the Roman church that during the time of the Reformation said that only the magisterium, the official teaching arm of the Roman church can teach you the Bible, the scripture claims that it's understandable. Doesn't mean that we don't need Bible teachers, that God raises up men and women with the gift of teaching, men with the gift of pastor teacher, but it's understandable. And so Jesus would repeatedly ask, haven't you read the scripture? He took the Emmaus disciples on that road and he walked them through the scripture. He said, are you so hard of heart that you, you didn't realize this? And so there is an assumption that we can understand scripture. Many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, John will write, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. So there's an assumption that you can understand scripture. That brings us to where we are today. Roman numeral uh, two, the priority the Christian should place on the word. Again, if you're new to this course, at the beginning of every Roman numeral, there's kind of a summary paragraph so that if you're teaching this in a Bible study or some other venue, you're giving them a flavor of where we're headed. Now, this is also offered in the Institute of Biblical Studies. And so people take this for credit to get a degree, um, but they have to do the work. And part of it is they have to demonstrate they've heard all the messages. And to do that, they have to fill in the blanks. So that's why you're filling in blanks, okay? But hopefully you're learning in the process, all right? Uh, here, let's start with this paragraph. The New Testament exhorts us to take seriously our relationship with God through his word. If we have a casual relationship to scripture, if we do not take advantage of learning God's word through those gifted in the body to teach us and through our own personal time with God each day, then we are the people who suffer. And if we do not know Jesus as our, and if we do know Jesus as our Savior, we will have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, again, that whole concept is covered later in this discipleship course, developing an eternal perspective. It's called by different terms, the bema, the judgment of the just. It's the judgment that Christians face. And so Christians who are apathetic in their study of Scripture as we'll see later in this course, we'll have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. And so I've never met any Christian who is truly living the abundant life, who is fruitful for God and laying up eternal treasure in heaven, who has a casual relationship to the word of God. So point A there on the outline, the Christian is to be diligent to learn the word of God. So as believers, we are to be diligent in our study of the Bible so that God, and he's the one that we want approval from, right? So that God would deem our service for him as approved. By the way, the words in blue are scripture. If someone asked me that, what are the words in blue? Scripture. Um, verses that we're quoting or referencing. So we want... We want our service to be deemed by God as approved for the simple reason we are accurately using his truth. So Paul exhorts us in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman 
does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, You could translate it, study and show yourself approved, as our children memorize on Sunday night. The word, the verb, be diligent, actually is a word for study, but it's not just any kind of study, it's a diligent study. You can study, you can read a book with a fan on, as we used to say in college, or you can diligently do your homework. And when we come to Scripture, you can read a chapter, and an hour later, someone asks you, well, what was that chapter about? And you can't even remember. It probably was not a diligent study. So when you read this verse in its broader context, right off we learn that there are two kinds of workmen. On the one hand, there are those who are approved, and there are those who are not approved. So we're either an approved workman or a not approved workman. That doesn't mean that we don't grow in our ability. It's a lifelong growth process. But what category would God put us in? The Greek adjective used in the original language for approved was used outside of the New Testament for coins or of metals that have been tested in fire and have passed the test as genuine. They've passed the test. That's the word there, is genuine. There are students of Scripture who have been tested and have passed the test as genuine. But, on the other hand, there are those who are not approved because they've failed the test. You don't have to fail the test. Remember, we just covered the perspicuity of Scripture. God made the Word that you can understand it. You can study Scripture and understand it. And God wants you to understand it. You can't say, well, I, you know, it's too complicated. No, that's, that would be lazy. The former group, number five, does not need to be ashamed, while the latter group ought to be deeply ashamed because of choices they have made. So Paul says God is looking for a workman who is not ashamed, and that's the group we want to be in, right? All right, after this command, the apostle continues by setting before us two kinds of workers that he will contrast and then give us an example of each. So there's the good workman. The good workman handles accurately, or literally, the Greek New Testament reads, he cuts straight the word of truth, while the bad workman as seen in the false teachers whom he specifically names, Hymenaeus and Philetus, have deviated from the truth. Paul would often name false teachers to protect the church, to protect the sheep, to put them on the alert. And I'm sure he taught, well, we know he taught it because he'll often get very specific as to where their error is located. These two men mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.17, two verses later, are said to have gone astray from the truth. Literally, it says they swerved, or you could translate it, they deviated from the truth. That's what they did. And so here on the next page, Paul says in verse 17, in their talk, these two men will spread like, or, or these false teachers who follow these men will spread like gangrene, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So instead of creating unity in the church, they're causing catastrophe, havoc, disunity. 
doctrinal infection, and it's likened to gangrene. You don't want to get gangrene, do you? <laughs> well, there's spiritual gangrene. And a wound was infected even further in this past week or so with Andy Stanley and the things that he came out with. He is deviated from the truth, talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, affirming gay people in his church that it's just fine and we need to draw big circles and accept them and not draw lines and we can call them children of God in good status with the Lord. Then there are those who are in traditional marriage. That's a deviation from the truth. That's injecting people with poison. It's contradicting what Paul says in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And included in that list are effeminate and homosexuals, not to mention fornicators and adulterers. The truth of the Bible is like a target that a teacher will either hit or miss. So these are the words that he's using. They're very picturesque words in the first century. These are words that were used in common language in various fields of study. So when Paul uses them and he puts them in spiritual, the spiritual realm, just like gangrene is familiar to us, and Paul's using it spiritually, you can see how the bells would, would ring and the wheels would turn in their heads. This same Greek word translated accurately handling was used outside of the Bible of a farmer plowing a straight furrow. And it was also used of an engineer cutting a straight road through the forest. We have an engineer from MIT speaking on Sunday morning. It's the hardest science school in the world to get into. And he's also a graduate of Dallas Seminary. And he'll be speaking on the subject of why a young earth? Why is this old earth viewpoint incompatible with historical Christianity? You want to be here, bring a friend. 13, like a road or a path that needs to be cut straight through the forest so that the traveler can go directly to his desired destination. Even so, the word of truth representing the apostolic faith. You know what we mean by the apostolic faith. Jude uses the term, the faith delivered once for all through the apostles. It's this body of truth that they either personally wrote or sanctioned someone to write. write. We call it the New Testament. Even so, the word of truth representing the apostolic faith which Timothy had received from Paul, that Paul received from Christ, is to be communicated directly and accurately to others. 2 Timothy 2.2, And the things you've heard from me, Timothy, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Simply said, our handling of the word is like a road that is cut through the woods or it is like a plowed furrow that will either be straight or crooked. You know, and sometimes you, you hear a person and they're well-meaning, and it's obvious they just didn't do their homework. They did not study the text. If they just read the verse before it, they would never come up with what they came up with. They're just like making up things. That's not good. We want to cut a straight furrow. It's God's Word. We take it seriously. 
If a pastor like Timothy, number 16, is diligent to study the word, then he will be able to cut a straight road and people will be able to follow and stay on course. But if, on the other hand, a pastor swerves like an arrow, then the people that he is called to shepherd will be distracted from the target and their eyes will follow the arrow however widely, widely astray it has gone. And this, it just saddens me. I, I take no joy in what Stanley did this past week. But at the end of his services, in both services, he received a standing ovation. There's a mega congregation that's deceived. That it's okay to be a gay Christian. And so he had two different married gay people who are married, two different gay couples who were the primary speakers at his conference. And the people give a standing ovation when he comes back to defend why he had the conference. The arrow strayed and they followed it. And this is why, again, the word of truth being taught and preached was Satan's subtle, subtle attempt to get the Bible out of the evangelical church. He couldn't come into evangelicalism 30, 40 years ago and say, well, the Bible's not true, it's filled with error. So what he just did is he replaced it with silliness and foolishness. And so when... Two members of our staff in the 90s went down to a conference, a children's conference, and they came back and said, well, Andy Stanley says that pastors who preach the Bible exegetically are lazy and uncreative. I said, we'll never give that church another shout. When people gave me his book, I forgot it was called. It was basically a remake of Howard Hendricks' book, The Seven Laws of a Learner. I would just throw it in the wastebasket. He deviated from the truth, and it just took a little time to see how far the error went. So, 18, these two men had swerved from the truth. That's how the English Standard Version renders it. And that they said that the resurrection had already taken place. And so instead of bringing blessing and stability, they had upset the faith of some. Not all, but some. Because there's always various degrees of spiritual growth in the local assembly. No doubt, they spiritualized the resurrection. Because people could see it had not physically taken place. It's not like they could walk out into the local graveyard and see, look, all these graves are open and gone. And so they were teaching, like many liberals today, that Christians must not expect a physical resurrection. But the denial of a physical resurrection is a serious departure because the Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the great resurrection chapter, in verses 14 through 17, that a denial of our literal future resurrection is a denial of Christ's resurrection. So, like Timothy, we are to be good workmen, approved, and not ashamed. 
22. God wants us to know that it does not matter what kind of approval that we may have received from men because the truth is we can forfeit God's approval and have every reason to be ashamed. The good teacher handles the word of truth with scrupulous care as he stays on the path, cutting a straight course from Scripture so that people do not get on some byway missing the plain teaching of God. Look, on whatever level you're teaching, it might be a Sunday school class, it might be a Bible study, it might be first graders. The heart of a first grader is no less significant than an adult Bible fellowship. In fact, those are the next generation of people that will lead the church, and those little ones are under attack like never before. So we see people who visit our church every week who are not unsaved, and if they're a young couple and they have kids, 99.9% of the time, if they're unsaved, they're in the government school system. What do you think they're getting in that school system? We're beginning to hear it in our Awana classes and in our Sunday school classes, and we'll be offering some special training to parents as to those who teach how to, how to redirect the subject. When a little girl who's 10 says, I think I'm a boy. We knew this was coming. It's just a matter of when it was coming. It's here. And we don't disdain those little kids. You know, when, when people say, well, they're born this way, they were not born homosexual or gay or born in the wrong body. That's blasphemous to the creative hand of God. Now, yes, if they're in kindergarten and, you know, they're being programmed, whether it's at the boys' club or the girls' club or you know, in the Cub Scouts or the Girl Scouts or with kids in the play yard, even if the teachers are not doing it. Look, if you're five, you'll believe there's a big fat man who wears a wet red suit with a long white beard and gets down every chimney around the world every Christmas. And so why do they have all this gender dysphoria? Because they're being programmed with evil. So do we view them with cooties? My heart breaks for these kids. I want to win them to Jesus. I want to win their parents to Jesus. And so those teachers, when the training is offered in just a short while, we'll be promoting it soon. You should do everything you can to come. What number are we on? 24? All right. As the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, a good pastor does not walk in craftiness, adulterating the Word of God. You're creating an impurity in God's Word when it's mishandled. When God tests our ministries and service done for Him in His local church, a topic we will study later on in this course, sadly, some of our ministry because of our mishandling of truth, will become ashes. 
1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay a foundation, right, other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And he warns, if any man builds on the foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work is going to become evident. Who's he talking about contextually? Pastors. He's warning pastors. That's why I threw Stanley's book. It wasn't like Hendrick's book in the basket. That's why I was not interested in Rick Warren and what he had to offer. Those guys did incredible damage because they replaced God's way of to do church with a new way that created crowds and mobs of unconverted people. And so God warns a pastor, be careful with the kind of tools you use because if you use worldly wisdom to build his church at the judgment seat of Christ, if you're a saved person, it's going to go up in smoke. Look, I'd rather have a handful of diamonds than a, a, a truckload of hay at the judgment seat of Christ. But understand, as we'll see later on in this course where we deal with developing an eternal perspective, it doesn't just apply to pastors. Because that same judgment, Paul tells us in Romans 14, 12, so then each one of us must give an account of himself to God. So we can be crafty and smart and cool and slick. And we can use worldly methods. And you can even use these worldly methods in other venues. But it's a waste of time and it will be a loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But an approved workman, 26, or a pastor diligently studies the scriptures and seeks to apply it first to his own life and then to his flock. Someone might reason that this does not really apply to me because the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy who serves as a pastor of a local church. While it is it may be true that you may not be called of God to serve in the office of teaching or as a pastor-teacher of a local church. So understand in the New Testament, there's the office of teaching, there's the office of pastor-teacher, there's the gift of pastor, which a woman can have in shepherding women. She can't serve in the office, but she can shepherd women with a pastoral or a teaching gift. So don't confuse, but when we think about the office, there's the office of teaching, there's the office of pastor-teacher, which I'm serving in tonight, and there's the responsibility to teach, and that's broadened to all people. And so, while it may be, uh, while it is true that you may not be called of God to serve in the office of teaching or as a pastor-teacher of a local church, and while it may be true that your spiritual gift does not lie in the realm of teaching, so there's a spiritual gift of teaching, Right? All of us have teaching as a God-given spiritual responsibility. James 3.1 warns against those who would clamor to fill the teaching office in the church, knowing that such people face a stricter judgment. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Most take this, and I would agree that this is what a senior pastor does. Elder, pastor, bishop used interchangeably the same office in the New Testament. 
But Paul speaks of those who are worthy of double honor because they work especially hard at preaching and teaching. And so there may be pastors in a church, but their principal responsibility is not the office of teaching. And he just warns, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because you use your tongue more. That's the context. I speak 700 words a minute, sometimes with gusts up to 1,000, and so I'll stumble on occasion, but you're running at the mouth, and God will evaluate every word that we speak. The great commission given by the Lord Jesus is recorded in Matthew 28, it's found, if you remember, five times in the New Testament, tells us that every believer in some sense shares the responsibility to teach. We all share in the responsibility to teach. Here it is, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven on an earth. Go there and for and make disciples. Again, it's synonymous here with converts, not do discipleship as people have hid behind that so they don't have to do evangelism. No, he's talking about making converts of all nations. What do you do with them? You baptize them, not in the names, but the name, because we worship one God in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and law I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The command given to, in this context, this was given in Galilee. This is not on the Mount of Olives, if you remember, Matthew 28. He's on what most would consider Mount Arba. Um, 500 people are there. And the promise is to the end of the age. And it hasn't come yet. So this has as much application for me as it does for you. With the same common responsibility in view, we learn this in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. He says in Hebrews 4.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So we saw this was the other usage of milk last week. There's milk in terms of like 1 Peter 2.2, like a newborn baby, hunger for the pure milk of the word. Here it's being used in an entirely different way to refer to simple truth. And he's just saying, look, enough time by this time, which is contrary to what some of our charismatic brethren would tell us, that if you have this experience, you're catapulted into some spiritual realm of maturity. No, it takes time to grow. Paul makes that clear. I came to you not as um, mature spiritual men, but as to babes in Christ. I gave you, past tense, milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able. Why? Because there are new Christians. Then he says, even now you're not yet able. Two plus years had gone by, and they still weren't able. They should have been able, but they hadn't grown in two years. And so that's what the writer of the Hebrews is reminding us. In fact, these people, to some degree, had regressed. They had gotten their spiritual ears plugged. So a mark that you are growing up in Christ is that while you continue in the role of a learner, you also move into the role of teacher. So when he says, by this time, you ought, you is plural, meaning in Southern English, y'all ought to be teachers. That's what he's saying, the congregation. And that's why while an elder may not necessarily formally teach in the church, 
The scripture says he must be apt or able to teach. In the parallel text, it says he must be sound in doctrine. Why? Because it's a reflection that he is mature in his understanding of scripture. That means that while he might not stand behind a pulpit, when someone comes up and asks him a basic question, he ought to be able to respond. And if we're growing, we ought to learn how to respond to people's questions. And if we don't know, we just say, I don't know, but you know, I'm going to find out. There's nothing new under the sun that people are asking. However, if we are to move into the role of a sound teacher, then we must be diligent in our study of the scriptures so that God might place his stamp of approval on our work. So again, be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible teaches you are one of God's beloved, and you are beloved of God. So on the one hand, you're a member of those who are beloved, there's the verb use, and then in the noun use, you're, we're collectively beloved. So two usages of the word, and I gave you two passages that reflect both. So one is a noun, the other is a verb. I think your way through this. There is nothing you can do to improve your acceptability before God. You have the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, it says here, so that we might become the righteousness of God. To be sin on our behalf means he was treated as if he had committed the sin. And not just your sin and my sin, but every person who's ever lived and yet to be born. And when we receive Christ, God treats us as if we lived Christ's life. We're credited with his righteousness. So we have a new position. You have the righteousness of God and you're as much loved by the Father as he loves his son, John 17, 23. A root cause of many of our spiritual problems and a major cause of lacking a passion and hunger to study the Bible lies in our not knowing God as both a loving Father and as a sovereign God. If you are beloved by God, Jesus reveals in his high priestly prayer that the Father loves the child of God. Remember, he doesn't love everyone equally. He loves us broadly, but he loves us specifically when we receive Christ. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, John will write in another passage, and such we are. But in John 3, 36, he that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him. So it says the Father loves the child of God just as much as he loves his Son as Jesus clearly revealed in praying this in John 17. He said, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. And the unity God calls us to have is based on truth in this prayer. 
Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. It's not some ecumenical movement. So that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them just as you loved me. That's really profound. He says, you, Father, love them in the exact same way that you loved me. All Christians believe theoretically that we have a loving Heavenly Father, but the fact that we are often worried and anxious and so full of insecurity and fear proves that we do not believe this deep down in their hearts or our hearts. But sadly, there are born-again Christians, born-again believers, who would dare to believe and confess that God loves them, there are few, there are few born again. I was trying to, I have some typos in here. Um, These handouts take about 30 hours and I worked all day Saturday on something else and then Monday and uh, all day last night until 10 o'clock and hoping I'd get this printed by noon, and I got to Claudia, but I didn't get all the typos, so I apologize. But by the way, you get the final copy, all the typos are gone. But sadly, there are a few born-again believers who would dare to believe and to confess that God loves them as much as he loves Jesus. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus said. Now, when you understand that, again, when, when we're talking about like doing anything, whether it's studying scripture or whatever it is, The motivation is that we are as loved as much by the Father as he loves his Son. Because we are in Christ, you can't do anything to improve your standing. You have a new identity in Christ. You can't do anything that will ever make God love you more. You can't do anything to make him ever love you less. That's grace that teaches us. The grace of God has brought salvation for all men. But Paul then goes on to say it teaches us, those of us who have been saved by it, to deny worldliness and unworldliness and so forth. This great truth that we are unconditionally, internally beloved by God should motivate us to learn God's word, to be approved to God. Because there is a difference between being accepted by God and being used of God. And I'm not sure we always draw that line in our minds. You're totally beloved of God. You're a member of the beloved. But just because you're totally approved and accepted doesn't mean that you're going to be used. We are all equally loved, but we are all not all equally usable. This truth is evident by what we've seen in the way God uses his word in both justification and in sanctification. We studied that text last week. We're born... Again, by the word, James 1.18, and then we're told that we're to embrace this word which is able to save our souls. Present tense, sanctify us. Save us not in terms of justification, not in terms of glorification, but in terms of present day, becoming more like the Lord Jesus, which is able to save our souls. So those were those two verses. Think through this with me. If no one can become a true believer in Christ apart from the word of God. For the Bible reveals that we are born again or saved, not of seed which is perishable, but 
imperishable, 1 Peter 1.23, if it is true that no one has ever had faith until they have first heard the Bible, and you know what I mean by that, even before the Bible was written, God gave his word in many portions and in many ways. He revealed to Abel, as we studied not so many months ago, the kind of sacrifice that he was to offer the Lord that his brother did not do because in the New Testament commentary, it tells us he came by faith. And faith is always based on the revealed word of God. So if it's true that no one has ever had faith until they've heard God's word, to which they must respond in faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, then if you do not know scripture very well, you'll be handicapped in helping others to find Christ. It's just that simple. In addition, if the word of God is the instrument that God uses to grow us once we are saved, because like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow spiritually, once again, if we do not know scripture very well, then you will be limited in helping save people to grow in respect to salvation. So when we think about disciples, I always tell parents the first line and level is not the guy at the office or the guy in the barracks. It's your children. It's your family. You say, well, I'm just new to the faith. I'm just learning the Bible. Well, get in it every day. And you know what God does? It's amazing. He gives you typically in that day or in that week the very issues that are going to come into your home that week so that you have an answer for your children. It just happens over and over and over again. But, you know, if I don't have time. i got to read my social Internet page today and update my Facebook page and, you know, watch the ball game. And not necessarily bad. But if I'm not in the Word, I'm really hindering what God can do through me. While we, are, while we all serve in different capacities using different gifts, right? First Peter 4.4, 4, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as good stewards of God's grace. Most importantly, the Christian life is about bringing people to Christ and helping them to grow in their faith that they might love and serve God. So, you know, whatever you do, whatever your realm of giftedness is, and there's 16 spiritual gifts in the New Testament that God is still giving today, and you have at least one of them. But there's common responsibilities with all 16 of those gifts. So you may not have the gift of serving, but you're called to be a servant. You may not have the gift of evangelism, you're called to do the work of an evangelist. And so if the most important thing in life is to introduce people to Christ, and once they come to Christ, to help them to grow... And the instrument that God uses to convert and the instrument that this God uses to grow is the Word of God, and I don't know it, then I've greatly handicapped and hindered what God wants to do. Since God's Word is the instrument of the Holy Spirit in both conversion and spiritual growth, then we are forced to conclude that our usability with God in this process is indexed to our study and application of the Bible. Okay, point B. The Christian must minister the word from a spirit-filled life. It would only make sense in light of how the spirit uses his word in both conversion and growth that he would minister his word effectively from a life that is both filled by him and a life that is filled with his word. We have already studied 
two primary conditions, and I say we've already studied if someone's taking this basic discipleship course or if they're in the discovery class. Two primary conditions that we must meet if we are to be prepared for the Holy Spirit who lives in us and in turn fills us. We studied in section two and in section six, we're in section seven tonight of this discipleship course, the command found in Ephesians 30 not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve is a love word because you can only grieve someone who loves you and indeed the Spirit of God loves you. By the way, don't ever call him an it. He's not some force or thing. He is a person and he loves you. While your next door neighbor's child who does wrong may bother you, only when your children do you wrong do you typically grieve. For we only grieve if we deeply love the person who's doing wrong. If you can be grieved over those whom you love, all the more is the Spirit grieved out of His holiness and love for us when we disobey. Jesus says in Luke 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your Father? And then He adds, He's going to give you the Spirit. In Romans 5, 5, it says the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. And so he is grieved when we disobey him. Any known sin that is unconfessed prevents the Holy Spirit from filling us so as to produce Jesus' character in us and to accomplish his ministry through us. The solution to grieving him is to confess any known sin. Again, if we're talking about this in the context of ministering God's word, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, and He uses the Word of God through a person who's filled with Him. So if you're trying to teach the Scripture to your children or in some Bible study or in a one class, and you're not filled with the Spirit, again, you, you've handicapped what He wants to do in you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We learned in section two of this discipleship course that verse nine, 1 John 1, 9, is not an invitation to salvation, but an exhortation to fellowship with God. Your relationship with God is eternal. Your fellowship is moment by moment. These things I've written to you that you might have fellowship with us, John writes, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And then drop down in verse nine, he'll say, if we confess our sin. He's talking about intimacy, not union, but communion with God. So this verse is used all the time, out of context, has nothing to do with conversion. It has everything to do with walking closely with the Lord. We learned in section two of this discipleship course that verse nine is not an invitation to salvation, but an exhortation to fellowship with God. God wants us to know in our experience what is already true of us positionally. What are you positionally? Righteous, forgiven, and unless we are experiencing God's forgiveness, then we're not walking in the light and we will not be filled with him. So as we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. So we have to be volitionally committed to obeying the Lord. When someone is in sin, they're, they're doing just the opposite. 
So while they may be positionally forgiven, they're not experiencing that forgiveness, that cleansing. Positionally, every Christian has forgiveness of all their sins, past, present, and future, right? Colossians 1, 13, and 14. But practically, not every believer is experiencing that forgiveness. The great confession of David in Psalm 32 parallels Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. So, and by the way, in, in Psalm 32, like in Psalm 51, he talks about knowing God's forgiveness. I probably should have put this in here. It just came to my mind now. So that I can teach others your way. In other words, he's saying, if my heart's not in sync with you, Lord, I can't see sinners converted to you. And David had a heart for that. So first, there must be a sincere desire to be filled with the Spirit, such that any sin we cherish will prevent His filling. Such that any sin we cherish will prevent His filling us. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? One of the Beatitudes. That person will be filled. But if we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness because we're clinging to sin, we're making our choices. We also learned earlier in this course that along with grieving the Spirit, we can be guilty of quenching Him and preventing Him from filling us. For this reason, we are commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Or more literally, it can be translated as the American Standard 1901 renders it, which is the predecessor to the Bible most of you have in your laps. Quench not the Spirit. Actually, the first word is quench. Quench not the Spirit. And so that's what's underscored and emphasized. We grieve the Spirit when we do things we should not do, And we quench the spirit when we do not do those things we ought to do. So one deals in the negative realm, contextually in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The other deals in the positive realm. When the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit, he's dealing in the positive aspects of the Christian life. The verb for quench speaks of suppressing fire which should not surprise us since the Holy Spirit is likened to a fire. If you took my course on pneumatology, we looked at all the various symbols that are used to describe the Holy Spirit, and one symbol is fire. He's likened to fire dwelling in each believer. And so actually the International Standard Version reads, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Not bad, it's capturing the nuance. The Spirit wants to express Himself in our actions and our attitudes. And when we do not do those things that He wants us to do, when we do not allow the Spirit to work through us as He wants, then we quench Him. So if the solution to grieving Him is to confess our sin, the solution to quenching Him is to yield to him. So if there's something we know we should be doing, it's a command. God says, do it. I'm not going to do that. I pay you, preacher, to win people to Jesus. You don't pay me. God pays me. (laughs) I can't win people for Jesus that God wants you to win for Jesus. There's all kinds of things in the positive realm that God has commanded us to do. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You must be willing to go anywhere He wants you to go, to say whatever He wants you to say, to give whatever He wants you to give. 
and to do whatever he wants you to do. How? As a living and holy sacrifice. Assuming you're not grieving or quenching the Spirit, then you can by faith trust him to fill you according to his command to be filled. It's not an option, right? Verse 17 says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. According to his command and his promise that God always answers pleasing prayer. First John 5, right? This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked from him. Is it God's will for me to be filled with the Spirit? Yes, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of God is. It's in the imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. So yes, I know I'm in the will of God if I'm asking God to fill me with the Spirit. But I have to ask, am I meeting those conditions? If I have cherished sin in my heart, if I've rationalized things where I've just gotten used to sin, I don't care. Or if there's aspects of obedience in the positive realm that I'm unwilling to do, then I'm grieving and quenching him, and I can't ask and expect him to fill me. But assuming my heart is right, yes, it's God's will for me to be filled. And if I know that he hears me, whatever I've asked, and I know that I have the request that I've asked from him. Knowing that he does not fill a dirty or unyielded vessel, but knowing it is his will to fill you, then by faith you trust to do what he says. See, don't look for some experience, oh, I'm supposed to speak in tongues or feel a certain way. That's the opposite of faith. The whole charismatic movement is built on the opposite of faith. It is so erroneous, so inspired by the evil one. It's created so much havoc and evil in, in discord in the body of Christ. It's just the opposite of what God calls us to do. There are two primary conditions we must meet if we are to be prepared so that the Spirit who lives in us can fill us. But for Him to consistently fill us, there are some conditions we must meet. Negatively, we're commanded not to grieve or quench the Spirit, while positively, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The tense of the verb indicates a continuous moment-by-moment walk. In other words, keep on walking, moment-by-moment. A moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit to live his life in and through you. All right? Turn the page. We're going to finish, and I'll pray at the end tonight. And those of you who have those prayer requests and been entrusted with that prayer request, I want you to make sure you pray for it tonight, if you would. In the physical realm, walking by its very nature is a succession of dependent acts where one foot is on the ground and the other is in the air. When one foot is lifted, it is done so in faith that the foot on the ground is able to support the full weight of your body with each step trusting that the supporting foot will allow you to move forward. So he's using a physical analogy to remind us of a spiritual reality. In the same way, spiritually, we must not live our Christian lives in our strength, but in the Spirit's power who is ready to fill us and to assist us. Remember, one of his names is he's the helper. He's the helper. My wife would often tell our children when they said, now remember, the Holy Spirit is your helper. He wants to help you through this. You need to ask him to help you. 
This attitude of dependence upon the Spirit is seen through the Bible and the many various commands that God gives His church to carry out. As illustrated in the realm of sin, God warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In addressing the subject of sin and temptation, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that a self-sufficient attitude precedes stumbling. It's the opposite of dependence. Oh, I I won't do that. I couldn't do that. No, that's when you're tempting the devil to tempt you. You that are spiritual, restore such a one, he'll say in Galatians 6. Watching for your own selves, lest you too be tempted, Bergie paraphrase. Um, God reminds us how others have fallen. That's the whole first section of 1 Corinthians 10 that he gives the warning in verse 12. And so will we if we are confident in our own strength. Why? Because no temptation has overtaken us, but just such is common to everybody. The strongest Christian is one who sees himself as weak and feeble. Let me read that again. The strongest Christian is the one who sees himself as weak and feeble. And he believes that he needs the help and the strength of the Spirit. We started the Christian life by faith, and so every day we are to walk by faith. Just as the Apostle Paul told the Colossian church, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. When you came to Christ for salvation, you came in a bankrupt state, admitting your total inability to save yourself. And by faith, you placed your full confidence on what Jesus did for you. By grace, through faith, not of yourself, it's God's gift. Anyone trying to earn or work for heaven is going to end up in hell if they don't repent of that. Either God saves us all by himself without any help from us, or he doesn't save us at all. That's how we come to Christ. In the same manner, to grow in Christ, you continue to admit your total inability to live the Christian life in your own strength. And you choose by faith to walk by the Spirit, depending on him as a branch depends on a vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains or abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In ourselves, we are powerless, fruitless, and is helpless. Doesn't mean we can't be active. But he's not talking about activity. He's talking about fruitfulness. In ourselves, we're powerless, fruitless, and is helpless as a branch cut off from the vine. We're unable to produce any fruit that pleases God. The fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruits of the Spirit are... Most of you know the fruit of the Spirit is. You can't say, well, I got a lot of love, but I'm real low in kindness and gentleness. No, this is a manifestation that the Spirit produces. But it's a growing manifestation. He speaks in John 15 of no fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. There's a progressive nature in that chapter. As you grow in Christ, these qualities should grow with time and with decades. The conditions that sustain us to keep being filled with the Spirit is first to walk by the Spirit, depending on Him. But second, we're also sustained to walk by learning the truths found in God's Word. So, beyond the command to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, you're also called to be one who sows to the Spirit in Galatians 6.8. If you are abiding in Christ, then His Word will be abiding you in you because the Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. 
but he always works in conjunction with the truth of his word. So we're going to see here, that it's a half-truth, and we'll get into this next week to say, well, the spirit-filled life is the word-filled life. Well, that's a half-truth. It is true that the Christian who is walking with the Lord has his mind being permeated with Scripture. But you can learn the Bible and be grieving the Spirit over here, quenching him over here, and not be filled in all of your study isn't having its effect. On the other hand, there are Christians, as we'll see, that are weak in their study. Well, let me keep going. If you're abiding, okay, so we did 38, right? Yeah, 39. For this reason, we are commanded in Galatians 6, 8, not to feed or sow to the flesh, but to feed or sow to the spirit as we study God's word. And so where do you spend your sowing hours? We're living in a wicked, evil day. And there's so much filth everywhere. You have to choose. And you've got, you know, pastors who will quote movies that they're watching that belong in the garbage can. And they're encouraging their congregations. It's okay. And it's not okay. The things that are true and right and honorable and worthy of praise, set your mind on these things. There's choices to make. I'm not saying you can't watch a movie. I'm just saying you've got to know what kind of stuff you're putting in the old noggin. And are we sowing to the Spirit? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorpho, it's we get our word metamorphosized from it. That whole process the butterfly goes through. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how it happens. So that you may prove, it's the word know, test, realize what God's will is, that which is namely good and acceptable and perfect. Sadly, the spirit-filled life today is often described in terms of emotions. Sometimes people think that if they are filled, spirit-filled, that they will display a certain kind of emotion. And if that emotion is not present, they conclude they are no longer filled with the Spirit. Christ was always filled with the Spirit. Yet he displayed a wide range of emotions, including joy, anger, exhaustion, and sorrow, to name a few. He said, I thought anger was sin. Be angry, but sin not. Not all anger is sin. While feelings have their place in our lives, God did not not intend for our emotions to rule our lives, but he desires his word to rule us. And when the spirit rules our emotions, then we are spirit-filled. Only as our mind is renewed through the counsel of Scripture will more and more areas of your life conform to the spirit's plan. And this becomes criti- critical because, you know, you, you got Christians who confess, repent, confess, repent, confess, repent, and nothing changes. And there's a missing ingredient. Either they're not filled with the Spirit or they're not sowing to the Spirit. And next time we're going to see how the two intersect and how God uses a clean, filled life feeding on the Word of God to change character. I'm not saying you won't sin, but if you're still struggling with the same sins you were struggling with a decade ago, there's a short circuit there somewhere. Next week's very important. It's very important as you disciple your children. 
Only as our mind is renewed through the counsel of Scripture will more and more areas of our life conform to the Spirit's plan. For instance, we will not, may not always feel like giving thanks when difficult times come into our life. But when we do, we are obeying what God says. This is all a part of walking by faith. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks in all things. Now, if you had that in your heart, and you sowed that in your heart, and you memorized it and meditated on it, and maybe like Romans 8, 28, and the Spirit of God has freedom to bring that to the forefront of your mind when you hit some kind of a challenge, we might respond differently. And so in this section, as promised earlier in this course, we will explore how to practically on a day-to-day, practically on a day-to-day basis, how we can be one who sows to the Spirit. All right, let's, let's bow in prayer.